If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As politics became increasingly tumultuous and power shifted in interwar Europe, how did news of what was happening there reach Americans? Well, the chances are it arrived through one of four foreign correspondents who are featured in a new book by Deborah Cohen called Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. These journalists rushed across Europe in the 1920s and 30s, gaining audiences with deposed royals and rising dictators. And in the process, they became some of the most famous names of their day. Eleanor Evans spoke to Deborah to find out more about this close-knit band of American reporters. So we're talking today about your latest book, Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, The Reporters Who Took on a World War, which considers a close-knit group of American journalists, foreign correspondents who would become some of the most famous of their day, who covered the tumult of interwar Europe. Can we start from hearing from you, Deborah, perhaps by um, how you view this group and what brought you to write their stories in such a way? So these, this group of reporters uh, were the most famous foreign correspondents of their day. And they were not just famous in the United States, but they were famous worldwide. So they were the sorts of people who were profiled in newspapers across the world. There's a bar named after one of them in Baghdad. They record interviews. They're on the news. They're written about as really feature stories. What brought me to write about them was actually a chance encounter in an archive with a set of miscellaneous correspondence that belonged in the reporter John Gunther's archive at the University of Chicago. And I went looking for one thing and sort of idly picked up the 1937 miscellaneous correspondence file. Now, Gunther was really one of the most famous foreign correspondents of his era. And in the miscellaneous correspondence file was amazingly, a letter from Nehru, miscellaneous correspondence, mind you, in 1937 about his uh, memories, sort of sacred memories of his dead wife who just died. And another letter from Jan Masaryk joking with John Gunther about the abdication crisis. And I thought, my God, this is the miscellaneous foreign correspondence file. What is in the named correspondence file? So that began an investigation for me, which was to try to figure out, so who were these people who essentially funneled the foreign news, a very small group of people, but who funneled the news for millions of of their fellow Americans, and as I said, worldwide, important as well. What motivated them? What influence did they have? And how did they live through these tumultuous times? Right, some big names there in that file of miscellaneous correspondence. That's really fascinating. So I wonder if you could give us a sense then, an overview of the four people that you're writing about, the four journalists in your account. 
Yeah, that at the heart of the book are four journalists: the John Gunther, um, who worked for the Daily News and then became a book journalist, writing most famously uh, the Inside series. Inside Europe was his um, bestseller in Britain. Vincent Sheehan, who is the author of a book, Personal History, again a big bestseller in Britain as well as in the United States. Uh, Dorothy Thompson, who was the first American woman to helm a major overseas news bureau in Berlin. And by the 30s, the late 30s, was uh, writing thrice weekly columns, opinion columns for an audience of 8 to 10 million. And H.R. Knickerbocker, who was reportedly the best paid journalist in the world, apparently, so purportedly again, the only American uh, reporter whose correspondence Mussolini bothered to read, read all the way through, and a huge epic figure, a very brave brave journalists like the rest of them. So these are very famous names of their day. And and in this episode, I imagine we'll be talking about them largely as a group, but your book is full of the most wonderful um, stories on on an individual level. Um, And I wonder if we can just um, go back to the very early days of this period you're writing about and and ask perhaps what was so different about the brand of journalism that these um, four figures in particular were doing compared to what had come before them? Yeah, there are two major differences. So the news in America was tended to be in the respectable papers after the First World War, very focused on objective reporting, on maintaining impartiality and detachment. And what happened to all of these figures is that they moved away from detachment to what we now call really engaged journalism. So they took sides and they found it impossible not to take sides. And we'll get into that, I'm guessing, a little bit more later. And then the second thing is that they were very focused on personalities. And this was something that to British eyes especially distinguished them from British reporters. So they tended to be interested in private life. They were very post-Freudian. So they, you know, understanding what made the dictator tick became one of their main quests. So it's it's those two things. And that distinguishes them, as I said, from their American, the people who come before, but it also makes them a very distinctive brand, the kind of subjective, almost emotional journalism that they practiced. Right. And how much of an appetite then is there for, for this in America? Um, what, what sort of insight are they hoping to deliver back home? Yeah. So for someone like Evelyn Waugh, it's, this seems to be just a completely American style. And he, he views it as sort of fraudulent as well. But the fact is that these American reporters knew their audience really well. And they knew that Americans in particular had a taste for personality-based journalism. So this is the idea that they're treating European politics, as one of them calls it, like a Euro- like a gilded police court. They're really delivering the sort of on-the-spot, personality-driven journalists that they know that the people that they grew up with are going to be interested in. And that's the hook, really, because if you're just going to talk about the you know vagaries of Austrian politics for an American audience, they're not going to understand that or really care very much about it. And what they're instead aiming is for for someone like Waugh or Malcolm Muggeridge, not only does it seem like they're giving themselves incredible airs, flouncing around the world, being you know engaged and saving small distressed countries, but also that they are they're really people who are interested in private lives and exposing those. 
So it's clearly a time um, when America is becoming more attuned to international news. And I wonder, can you give us a sense of the backgrounds uh, broadly of, of these journalists, these correspondents, and what is driving them across the Atlantic to these stories? So when I first started this project, I imagined that these would, that the correspondents who become the most famous foreign correspondents of their era would correspondingly be from elite backgrounds, that they would be from the East Coast, that they would have gone to Ivy League schools, to Harvard and Yale and Princeton. But that's absolutely wrong. So these, the parts of the country that furnish the Famous foreign correspondents of the interwar years are the small towns of the Midwest, the heartland, places like Dowagiac, Michigan, and Pana, Illinois, and the far reaches of Texas and the Pacific Northwest. So they come from small towns and sometimes cities that we think about now as having been the heartland of non-interventionism and isolationist American attitudes. And so in a sense, that's a paradox, right? I mean, we don't expect for the most, the people who are most cosmopolitan to have come from those settings. But in fact, if you think about it, it makes sense. They were the people who are best able to communicate with the, and it, huge variety of Americans who tuned in to the foreign news because they could imagine them. They were their neighbors. They were the people with whom they had grown up and how they come to Europe. So they come as very young people. They go on cattle boats, feeding and watering the cattle on their way across the Atlantic. They come with a few hundred dollars, of course, a lot of money at that point in their handbags, like Dorothy Thompson, having saved up her dollars so that she could go. They don't exactly tell their parents what they're doing. Dorothy Thompson's father, who was a minister, was very surprised to find that she was planning to set out for the Soviet Union. <laughs> that wasn't what he was expecting. Um, he thought he was she was going off to stay with their relatives in England. They were immensely brave, entrepreneurial, adventuresome, they had a devil-may-care attitude. They were irreverent. And that sent them to across the Atlantic. They were fed up with America. They were fed up with prohibition. They were fed up with small-town attitudes. So they were looking for something bigger. Right. And what do you think as well? What do you think characterizes this, um, their view then of, of what's happening in Europe at this time? Are they uniquely placed in terms of being able to see, foresee, interpret back home what is happening with the rise of these dictatorships and these strong men? Yes, I think uniquely placed is exactly the right way to put it. They are, they bring to their reporting, most of them have been on the staff of local news in corrupt American cities like Newark and Chicago. So they bring to their reporting a, a reverence and an ability to see a blowhard and a strong man for what he is. They are not indebted to uh, patronage networks or to um, foreign ministers, ministries that are trying, that are going to control them. So they're remarkably independent. That helps them to see uh, the situation. They also, and they share with, this is a kind of Midwestern habit of mind, which is they take it against European imperialism. So that places them to see quite clearly what's happening in India or in the Rif, uh, where 
French and, and Spanish forces are subduing a rebellion by the Rifi peoples in North Africa. Um, the same thing in Syria with the Druze peoples. Um, so it's it's that anti-imperialism, it's the irreverence, it's the fact that they're independent, they're willing to eke by on a couple of hundred dollars that really gives them that sense of distance. Yes, and I wonder if um, that uh, the context, the extra context they have. I mean, your your account gives such a sense of their lives being such a patchwork of conflicts and uprisings and putches, and there's so much filing copy late at night and staying up to make sure they get all the right tips. And um, it, I guess this extra context that they can gain from, um, as you mentioned, these overlapping lines across Europe is just so invaluable at this time. That's right. So they magnify each other's contributions because they are a close-knit group. So when John Gunther goes to write his Inside Europe, he sits down and debriefs all of his friends. And he basically is scribbling notes because he hasn't seen Stalin himself, but his, some of his fellow reporters have. So that's how he gets this sense of immediacy. And you almost, you can feel that in the archive when you read those notes, you know, that notes of someone who's scribbling down either in his firsthand interviews or in the secondhand um, work where, you know, what, so what does it feel like when Stalin enters a room? Well, you can, you know, antenna go up because you can feel that he's there. And because they're a group, because they're friends, because they're rivals, because they're competitors, they really magnify each other's contributions. Mm. Right. There's this real sense of them being insiders in this world and offering that extra insight um, to the readers back home that there's clearly an appetite for. So can you take us then into the the tumult of interwar Europe that they are reporting on? They're present for every major news story through the 20s and the 30s. And in fact, they're oftentimes racing from one to another. So at the frontispiece of the book is a map, which is just a some of it was very difficult to actually manage this map because it's a, a bunch of crisscrossing lines and you can see where they intersect but you can also see you know they're going from berlin to shanghai or they're going from you know paris to um uh back to america then to tokyo then to delhi so they are I would say a turning point story, let me just give you an example, for someone like John Gunther, who is based in Vienna as of 1930, is, are the events of 1934 in Vienna. First of all, the February Civil War, where uh, the Austro-fascist dictator, Engelbert Dolfus, um, takes the fateful decision to attack social uh, democratic um, leaders, but also the populace um, in February. And then in July, the murder of Dolphus by uh, Austrian Nazis, with probably with help from uh, the Nazi regime in Germany. And so someone like Gunther, he's really on the spot. He is in his car chasing after the convoys of police vehicles. He's running to, to the radio station where the announcers, where the Austrian Nazis have broken into the radio station trying to take control of the airwaves when Dolphus is essentially being held hostage and then murdered. 
Um, he's waiting outside the chancellery trying to find out what is going on. And so what you're able to do, for me as the writer, as the historian, what you're able to do is to give the reader a sense of what it's actually like to live in really in the midst of this, in the tumult, in the confusion, trying to figure it out. What is going on and how do you interpret it? Yes, I think that sense of immediacy is such a fascinating one. And, you know, you get the sense of being in Berlin, in Vienna, in Jerusalem as these events are happening. And I wonder if we can talk more broadly about their their tactics. Um, particularly, there was one um, that struck me, Dorothy Thompson's um, disguise as a nurse. I wonder if we can zero in particularly on that that episode as one example. So let me set the scene. It was 1921 and Dorothy Thompson, who was a stringer for American newspapers, was fascinated by the problem of what was going to happen to all of those deposed European monarchs. And in particular, she was really interested in the Habsburg monarchy. Now, Charles and Zita had been trying to come back to power. They had made one coup attempt, um, which had failed sort of comically. And but the second one in the fall of 1921 was much more serious, and Dorothy was there to cover it. Um, so top flight journalist. But before that, she's just a scrappy young woman coming out of a suffrage background in New York State. She takes a boat to uh, Europe trying to make her way as a journalist. No backing, no nothing. She manages to wheedle and sweet talk her way into a position essentially as a stringer in Austria. And one of the stories that she's really interested in is what is going to happen to the deposed monarchies? Are they going to stay dead and gone or are they going to somehow be revived? And for her, the interest is really in the Habsburgs. She's based in Vienna. And so she covers the various attempts of the deposed Habsburg rulers, Charles and his wife, his consort Zita, to come back to power. And they make really two attempts. Um, And Dorothy Thompson is on that train in 1922, rushing to the castle in Tata after the second attempt when Charles and Zita um, are imprisoned there. Essentially, the coup attempt has failed. They and their conspirators are imprisoned there. And Dorothy Thompson is trying to figure out how to get into that castle. She is bound and determined. She will get into the castle. Um, And of course, the you know every force in the Hungarian regime is determined bound and determined to make sure that she can't get there. Um, so she convinces the head of the Red Cross in Hungary. She'd been working for the Red Cross as a kind of PR agent, a publicity agent, and she convinces him that to that she will dress up as a nurse he will go there as a doctor to check on the condition of the Empress Zita, who is pregnant with her eighth child. After all, the pregnant Empress deserves medical attention. There she is. She's being held prisoner in that capsule. And Dorothy Thompson dresses up in a nurse's uniform and she drives right over the drawbridge with the Red Cross agent, with the Red Cross doctor. Meanwhile, the newsmen who are sort of sitting there stranded (laughs) are astonished to see her getting access Um, and she manages to report from inside the castle in, in Tata, um, 
and to send back the reports of what is the scene like there. So the, you know, Carl or Charles and Zita who are dignified in their defeat, all of the plotters who are worrying that quite rightly that they might be hung. And, and there's Dorothy Thompson behind a curtain dressed in her nurse's uniform, taking notes. What a way to get up close and personal at one of these uh, these events. Remarkable. Yes, and you can see why her the, her fellow correspondents, the men, were really jealous of her, but also they admired her. And the idea was that she could get the story, and that she was that they they spoke of her as one of the most famous war correspondents of the day, Richard Harding Davis. She was a Richard Harding Davis in an evening gown. So um, uh, very up close and personal then. And I guess that the personal is important here because you mentioned the map that has them crossing lines all over Europe. But I guess something to um, to make sure um, we mention is the way their lives inter- interlapped and overlapped so much. Um, you know, there was bed hopping, there was sharing of acquaintances of tips. Um, can you give us that sense of how they worked as a, as a group, I guess? They were friends really close friends and they were rivals. And as you say, there was a lot of alcohol, a lot of bed hopping and fundamentally a sense that they had to depend upon each other because after all, what were they? They were young Americans stuck out on the edge of the world in American terms, that is. And oftentimes with each other as the people who they most relied upon Rarely were they ever in the same place for long together because they were racing, as I said, from one crisis to another. But their ties really give us a sense of some of the dynamic issues in journalism at the moment So, and their conflicts with each other. So, for instance, one of the issues was how valuable was it, in fact, to get interviews with political leaders, especially with dictators. So there was a bit of, you know, there's a rivalry. Could you land Mussolini? Did you get an audience with Hitler? Dorothy Thompson did. So did H.R. Knickerbocker. Um, John Gunther was very jealous of H.R. Knickerbocker because he got all of these big time interviews. John Gunther got an interview with Trotsky, by the way. He goes on a paddle boat from Constantinople to interview the worldwide, you know, the prophet of worldwide revolution and exile. So, Dorothy Thompson came to believe, though, that this interview hunting was a particularly meretricious form of journalism. So she and H.R. Knickerbocker had been the best of friends. H.R. Knickerbocker had actually worked for Dorothy Thompson when she was the bureau chief in Berlin. He was her second in command. But they fell out, ultimately, when Dorothy Thompson launched a public broadside on Knickerbocker, reviewing his book, essentially saying um, in the 30s, Surely Mr. Knickerbocker can do better than this. And he shouldn't mistake access for um, insight. And of course, this for us is a big issue today, right? How much access, how much insight do you actually have to trade for access? How much, how much do you have to curb your story um, in order to continue to get access? So they play out those issues both in professional and in personal terms. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think the point here, and it's a bigger point, is that dictatorship itself, which we view as sort of self-explanatory, something that, of course, you would know it if you saw it, that's not the way it worked. That this was a process of figuring out what this new kind of leadership actually was. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yes, Dorothy Thompson sees Hitler in 1931. So she gets an interview. This is two years before Hitler comes to power. And Hitler doesn't grant that many interviews to foreign journalists. He's really hesitant about the foreign press. and But he's kind of utzed on by Goebbels, who wants him to see Goebbels and, and um, Putzi Hamstengel, his foreign press handler who wants him to see the foreign journalists. And so he sees Dorothy Thompson and he does the typical thing he does with journalists, which is he, they start off as if you're going to have a real interview and instead he just starts ranting. And as every journalist who sees him says, you felt like you were sitting in an arena, essentially being um, yelled at. Dorothy Thompson sees him. She leaves and she writes a piece which later on her friends will call her comico terrible gaffe which is hitler is a nobody hitler has little chance of coming to power even if he does come to power there's he has little chance of ruling for long he is a small man he is a feminine man he is uh someone who we don't have to take seriously so Dorothy Thompson repents for this mistake by becoming the most important, you know, Cassandra um, of her era in the 1930s. But it's a mistake. And Knickerbocker, on the other hand, sees Hitler as a really serious threat. He happens to be in Munich in 1923. He goes into the beer hall where the putsch is taking place. He, by that time, has... He's a young man still. He's renounced reporting. He's becoming a psychiatrist. He's gone to, to Munich to learn how to, to sort of see into the insides of souls. But after the beer hall putsch, he jumps back into reporting. And he's one of the people who through the 20s and the early 30s is warning about the dangers of Nazism. I think the point here, and it's a bigger point, is that 
dictatorship itself, which we view as sort of self-explanatory, something that, of course, you would know it if you saw it, that's not the way it worked. That this was a process of figuring out what this new kind of leadership actually was and what it meant. And even Knickerbocker, for a long time, I think, views it most likely that Mussolini and Hitler are actually going to be the biggest enemies of each other not of the Western democratic powers. Well, I, I definitely want to talk um, about the the sort of psychoanalytic element that um, comes to uh, play such a big role in, in their work. Um, but I wonder if we can go back quickly to that idea of access um, versus insight and ask, um, we've had a, a bit of a chat there about Goebbels and Hitler and how they managed the foreign press, but more broadly, how were these American correspondents regarded by the regimes they were reported on? Were they welcomed and what was the the dynamic there? I think one of the things that's most interesting to me about the dynamic between the reporters and the leaders in the interwar years is how many of those leaders are in fact themselves former journalists. And that's Churchill, that's Goebbels, that's Mussolini, that's uh, Count Ciano, um, the Italian foreign minister and Mussolini's son-in-law, Trotsky. And the dynamic is oftentimes an attempt to bend the journalist to the leader's will. And similarly for the journalist to try to maintain their independence as they are you know, being charmed and being flattered. So Mussolini was the most um, skilled at manipulating the press. And even Knickerbocker, who, as I said, is very suspicious um, both of the Soviet Union when he goes there and reports on the first five years plan, and also, of course, the Nazi regime, finds Mussolini much different from what he is imagining. He's imagining a snooty officer, Prussian officer type. And instead, he gets someone who is friendly and expansive and who Knickerbocker believes has a very good um, sense of the dangers threatening Europe, Hitler included. So... Where the Americans posed a problem, and this is very true for the British, uh, successive British governments, is that they were very difficult to contain. So the British could keep their own reporters, their own journalists, under pretty tight wraps, either informally because they all belonged to the same kind of clubby milieu, or more formally through censorship regimes. The Americans were very difficult to manage because they were they had no censorship to contend with. Um, they wrote what they thought. This was an unusually independent group of people who were difficult to rein in. So over and over again, and especially when it came to India, you see these various attempts. So when John Gunther and his wife Frances go to India in 1937 and 1938, Um, the India office sees them as, well, maybe they're going to be supportive of our regime, of the, of our government in India and our, our, uh, our rule. And the, the foreign office and the India office lay on a big song and dance and binders full of information. And Gunther, in part led by his wife, Frances, who becomes one of the most fiery Indian nationalists in the United States, through what she sees in India and through the attempt to manipulate the coverage, um, uh, 
is very, very difficult to contain. So they give him a bunch of briefing material and he essentially reduces that to, you know, a couple of sentences in his reporting. And then he goes on and on about Nehru and about Gandhi, which is precisely what the India office does not want to, to have happening. So it sounds um, like you've, you've touched on in so many of your answers that there's this real tension there between um, advocacy and interpretation. Um, I, I wonder if we can talk, uh, return to the idea of them being in sort of a post-Freudian world and what sort of role does psychoanalysis play in um, how they interpret this world that they're in in interwar Europe? Psychoanalysis is the most important framework Um Especially, I would especially for Gunther. So Gunther and both Gunthers. So both John Gunther, the reporter, and his wife Frances, who is a sometimes foreign correspondent who works, among other places, for the London News Chronicle. Both of them are psychoanalyzed. Um, John Gunther actually in 1934 in Vienna by Wilhelm Steckel, who is Freud's first apostate. <laughs> it's the first um, psychoanalyst to really turn decisively against Freud. Uh, Frances Gunther is psychoanalyzed many times over the course of her life. And what psychoanalysis comes to mean for them is that in order to understand what is happening in Europe, you have to first of all look at the leaders. So their accounts focus on the personalities of Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, um, Dolphus, uh, and on and on. And what you have to understand is how did they get to be the way that they are? And that happens in a psychoanalytic framework. So John Gunther goes off to find uh, the relatives of Hitler in the backwater, in an Austrian backwater. And he goes to interview them, trying to understand, so what made Hitler the way that he is? Now, they use psychoanalysis to explain how the leaders came to be how they are. But in a sense, what the book is documenting is the ways in which the boundaries between inner life, people's own inner lives, and geopolitics collapse. What they're trying to understand is the relationship between inner life and geopolitics and the ways in which the patterns that are playing out on the international stage are being visited on people's inner lives. So how is it that living in Hitler's Germany is affecting uh, the ways in which parents talk to children or husbands and wives relate? And Frances Gunther, in particular, comes to see marriage, her marriage, as being a microcosm of the world crisis. So when she goes to India with John Gunther, um, traveling around, learning about Indian independence movements, she sees this as an attempt, as a, as a template, as a pattern that she can use to actually change the patterns of her own marriage. So similarly, she's, you know, they're sitting around in 1934 thinking about whether she or John is more like Hitler. So there's a way in which it becomes very difficult for people to distinguish how they themselves, the sort of the relationships, the inner life that they are cultivating and the big patterns that they see around them. And that's true of the journalists because they're most exposed and for them, it really is up close and personal. They're talking all of the time. They're interviewing these people. They're sitting with them. They're having diplomats at their parties. 
But I think it's true of other people as well. It's a much broader pattern in the 1930s, suicides around the time of appeasement, for instance. Um, With the resurrection of these boundaries then, what happens to this type of journalism? What does it mean for the heyday of this type of writing? It really begins to look, this very emotional sort of journalism, this very personal sort of journalism, begins to look too emotional after the Second World War. Part of the effort after the Second World War is to rein it in, to make the journalist a detached person who is not taking sides, who's not an advocate, and to make foreign relations as well something that is not catching people's emotions. The emotions, the lesson, part of the lesson of the 1920s and 1930s is precisely how dangerous emotions are in politics. And so the idea that foreign relations is something to be done by a professional class of people, not a democratized public swept up in the emotions and the questions of, you know, Abyssinia or poor Czechoslovakia. And to make sure that those boundaries are unbreachable or as unbreachable as possible. And as a consequence, the heyday of these journalists, which they recognize themselves, they really see their moment passing. John Gunther and Jimmy Sheehan are in uh, a New York club right after the war, and they see the bombers, the men who were um, in those bombers over Hiroshima and Nagasaki who were in the bar. And they have a conversation about whether those men know that they have killed more people than anyone else before in human history. And then they discuss what is their, what has their own journalism meant after all. And Jimmy Sheehan, who is a, always inclined to a certain kind of drama says, well, our moment is done. It's past. We're over. And John Gunther doesn't agree with him, but in the end, he comes to feel that this is right, that the the, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, that was their heyday. And that by the 50s and the 60s, those of them who survive do look a little outdated. So if that is, that's the end of this um, sort of uh, heyday then, um, how... If any, does does any legacy persevere then? An immensely important legacy, which we live with every day. So I would say that's twofold. One part of the legacy is the idea of reporters who must take sides. Because to sit back and to report with detachment is to participate in lies. So you cannot report what the dictator says as if it is the truth because you are simply broadcasting his lies. So we see the return of that with the critique of both sidesism um, and the need for reporters and for journalists to actually um, be essentially fact-checkers themselves um, and to and to call out untruths or lies. The second legacy is the importance of the foreign news and for any country's foreign policy to have a set of observers who are on the spot and who can report what is happening. I mean, I think we feel very much 
you know, in an age when bureaus have foreign bureaus have closed, when it's foreign correspondents are more and more targeted, um, when there's much more violence against them, much less support for them. When we see their work, we understand how fundamental it is. So that is also the legacy, which is a legacy of a time when people came to understand what did it matter, why did it, why was it so important to have eyes and ears of the press on these situations. That was Deborah Cohen, last call at the Hotel Imperial, the reporters who took on a world at war. It's published by William Collins and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.